good. He wasn't here during the week, but you can see the Holy Spirit summarizing the week through him. And the words you are hearing from this man will change your life, ministry, and churches together forever. Shall we just put our hands together if we welcome Evangelist David Proudfoot? Amen and amen. Put your hands together, church. I am fascinated to... No, I won't tell you because that's the answer to my question. Come on, let's... <laughs> Thank you. Well, I trust you're refreshed. Please do sit down. As we go into the second and final <clears throat> lesson, we've seen how this word, mathetes, or disciple, has suffered loss over 2,000 years. It certainly has, if it's one definition, is that to be a disciple is merely to be a follower. In this session we are going to look at its seven stages. There is an his, a historical aspect to each of these steps. The word was first found 500 years before Christ and by the time of the early church 500 years later the word disciple had evolved, developed to speak of seven things. We will look at those seven things, and we will look at it in this way. First of all, we'll look at the historical use. That's important, because when the early church was born, birthed, its commission was to make disciples. To make disciples, you must know what the process of discipleship really entails. If in your thinking, to be a disciple is only to be a follower, then you'll be training and teaching people how to be a follower. But the other six steps will get neglected. So the word that once was so great, that once was greater than the sword, in its ability to change the destiny, destination of nations, and we, look, we saw Rome as being a prime example of a nation that was changed by the dogged tenacity of the church that held on and practiced the full meaning of the term disciple. They became mature in their discipleship and were very effective in the making of disciples. So the early church understood what it meant and they certainly picked up the baton and ran with it. So we're going to look at the history of the word. Then we, having looked br very briefly, there's seven stages, we'll have to be very brief. Briefly looking at the history, how it was used, what it meant. The, the, um, the New Testament application of that. And then the 21st century application how and what it means for us today.
So first of all, I want to talk very briefly with you about the purpose of discipleship. What is the ultimate purpose of discipleship? Well, we're going to look back in history to see an example of what it really meant. We're going to look at the great philosopher Socrates, not that we're disciples of Socrates, no we're not, we have a greater master by far, immeasurably greater, but the word was used during Socrates' time. Socrates was born around about the time the word Mathetes, disciple, first came into use. So Socrates lived in Athens when it was good to be a stonemason. Socrates was a stonemason. 480 BC, the Persians attacked Athens where Socrates was and demolished the city. The Persians left, so it was a good time to be a stonemason. If you've been to Athens, you'll know it's full of temples and monuments and statues, etc. All these were destroyed and needed to be rebuilt. So to be a, a stonemason, it was a very, very good time. But as Socrates got older, he, be, he became a renowned philosopher. And in his older age, he chose poverty. He walked around the city of Athens, summer or winter, barefoot, with a coarse woolen coat and he used to confront Athenians and say to them, do you really know what you believe? Or is what you believe secondhand? Have you really thought about your thinking? Which by the way, thinking about your thinking is the shortest definition of philosophy. Do you really know, do you really believe what you think? Have you thought about it? Or are you just receiving stuff from others and, and it's, you know, and buying into it? Or are you really thinking about your thinking? He was described as a horsefly. You know, horseflies would attack livestock and the bite of the horsefly was particularly painful for the livestock. He wanted to see, he was called a horsefly described as that because he wanted to bite people out of their, sting them out of their complacency. He wanted people to really think. That's what I love about being here because I know, I know you people are trained to think and it's a, it's a wonderful thing. But what is interesting about Socrates, we know so much about him today. It's said of the philosopher Socrates, the Greek philosopher, that he influenced Western philosophy more than any other philosopher in time. But it's strange. We know him so well, or we can if we wish to. We know so much about him. But how can that be, given that Socrates' belief was that the written word was dead, which I don't agree with. The written word is dead. He only believed in the spoken word. Live dialogue. That was a living word. So he never wrote a thing about his beliefs. Now that's fine for his generation, but that means he would then take his beliefs to the grave. His beliefs would die, because there's nothing written. How would we know Socrates today? Well, Socrates had methetes, methetei, disciples, Plato, 
Xenophon, and later on, Aristotle, and so forth, so on and so forth. They listened to him, they hid the word in their memory, they practiced what he taught, and then they wrote their books. So we know Socrates, through the disciples, they step by step became like their master Socrates. So Socrates, who would have been invisible because he wrote nothing, we would only know of him in a very sketchy way through history, we've already seen how poor history can be, we wouldn't really know him. But his disciples reconstructed the man through listening, adhering to what they heard, disseminating what they had learned in their own writings. So not just the memory of Socrates was kept alive for future generations, but he was made visible. He would have been invisible. Nobody would have seen him or known him. His disciples made him visible. Now what about the New Testament parallel then? Jesus wrote nothing down. And yet, more than 33% of this world's population know the Lord Jesus Christ and profess to follow him. How can that be when he lived 2,000 years ago and wrote nothing of his beliefs? And yet we know all about his beliefs. How can that be? Well, like Socrates. This great master, the Lord Jesus Christ, immeasurably greater than any, any previous master, trained his disciples, taught them. They listened. They adhered. They had disseminated his beliefs, writing it down, practicing it. They were bringing the master back into view. The master would have been invisible to the world. But Jesus has been made very visible. How? It's here that we find the true, amazing purpose of discipleship. It's to become like the master. To bring him into view for all to see and to know. Jesus said this in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 25. It is enough, sufficient, for a disciple, a mathetes, that's the word there, that he be like his master, and a servant like his master. The disciples to be like his teacher, it says in the scriptures to be like him. It's sufficient. It's enough for him. And this is the purpose of discipleship. The ultimate purpose that step by step through this human existence of ours, through the process and principles of discipleship, that we will step by step become like Jesus. In character, in practice, 
in belief so that Jesus will not be invisible to our world but we will indeed make him visible for all our world to see and to know this is the preferred methodology of the great master our master this is the way he chose for it to happen that through his living word and by the powerful Holy Spirit through teaching and adherence and practice step by step we are reconstructing Jesus making him seen and known with that purpose ultimate purpose in mind we'll now look at the missing stages in our sanctuary we begin this little journey with step one which quite rightly is to follow to follow is step one very important historically every process has its elementary step its first step every process has an elementary step discipleship begins with this elementary step to follow now the Greeks spoke about following and they meant going behind the master be he at that time we're speaking historically philosopher moral or religious leader a disciple in those days in the ancient Greek world followed behind the master the master went forth and the disciple followed Plato spoke of one called Theetetus who was drawn by Socrates teaching and wanted to become a disciple of Socrates so Theetetus it said followed from a distance he was an observer he was observing the man and that for him was the beginning of a process although he didn't know it at that stage now Plato used the term Mathetes to speak of a follower so to follow historically the first elementary step now the New Testament parallel Mark's Gospel chapter 1 and verse 17 Jesus called his first disciples and he said this follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men in verse 18 of Mark's gospel chapter 1 they immediately left their nets and followed him but they were following really as observers they had not really begun to be practicing disciples they were interested observers Jesus had said follow me they followed him and in the very first day which we see in Mark's gospel chapter 1 Jesus had introduced them to his message he entered a synagogue on the Sabbath Shabbat on Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught he introduced them to his teaching his message the same day and in the same place Jesus introduced their disciples these yet to be fully disciples to his authority because in that synagogue goodness knows who had been preaching there beforehand but one of their members was full of demons 
There was never enough power, however, in the words spoken for the demons to say enough. But when Jesus came and spoke, the demons could no longer keep quiet and began to scream out. Such was the power of Jesus' word. So the disciples who are followers, the first step in discipleship, following, observing, being introduced to Jesus and his teaching and his authority, eyes wide open, never seen anything like this before. We've been told, follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men. And now Jesus is introducing us and we as followers are observing him same day Simon's wife is sick and Jesus raises her up so he introduces to his message his authority and now his power to heal everyone goes to bed but the crowds have heard the news that in the very next part they're gathering around the house we want him where is he where is this Jesus and these new early and yet to be disciples are observing all of this Peter goes and finds Jesus who's just marginalized himself to get some quiet to pray and prepare himself for the next day and Peter says Jesus come back The whole town is looking for you. And so, in a sense, surreptitiously, Jesus is is introducing his mission to these disciples. First and second day that they followed him. Okay. So to follow is the first step in this process of discipleship. It is to walk behind the master and to observe. Isn't that pretty much what happened to most of us? We heard this news. We heard about it. We began, we're interested, we observe. We're beginning to follow. But there's more. And so today's definition of what it means to be a disciple, which is a follower, is terribly inadequate. We must follow and observe. In fact, we must keep following. Every day we follow, 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 follow. But it's not enough. And so we move on beyond that elementary step. And we are introduced to the second step. And the second step and the meaning in the process of discipleship is the term come. We go back in history to Socrates. Socrates sees Theetetus, that young mathematician who has heard of Socrates, is not quite yet sure if he's going to follow. He's leaning over there against the wall while Socrates is sitting around a table. Now, we said about Socrates, he did not like the written word. He believed the written word to be dead. He liked the spoken word because he believed that was dynamic and alive. So here Socrates is, not like some of the the um, expert elitist sophists who always taught for money and having taught were highly aloof from their students. Socrates didn't like that stuff. He liked the common table. He liked a meal. He would invite his young disciples to sit at what was called the common table and he would be looking at them. 
He would be looking into their hearts, so to speak, to see if there was anything, if they were pregnant with ideas and thoughts. And Socrates was trying, he was called the intellectual midwife. What he wanted to do was, first of all, to see in his disciples if there was any beautiful thing. That's the way it was described, within them. And he would seek to give birth to that, to encourage them to talk, to debate. And I have to say, one of the most wonderful things about reaching our world for Christ is to have in our own life a common table where we invite people around the common table for a meal and get talking and as mature, more mature disciples we look into their hearts and we listen to what they're asking in their questions we want to draw them out we want to draw them out Socrates on the whole was a good man now we're not disciples of Socrates we're not wanting to pedestal him and, and elevate him to a position he shouldn't have we're simply looking back 500 years to how the term was used disciple so that we can understand what the early church saw it to mean by the time the word had evolved and reached the early church I don't mean that the early church practices what Socrates taught. I don't mean that at all. I just mean that that's how the word was practiced. And isn't that what Jesus did? When he said, come. First of all, he said, follow me. And then, in the second step of discipleship, he said, come. And we find this wonderful New Testament parallel in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus, same gospel, Mark's gospel, so much happens in, in, in the fewest pages in any gospel. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to himself those he himself wanted and they came to him. You see, these are the disciples who Jesus, to whom Jesus had said, at least a few of them, follow me. They followed but it was not enough. The day would come when Jesus would say, come to me. Hadn't they already come? By following, hadn't they already come? Well, clearly not. Jesus wouldn't have said, come to me, if following was enough. Jesus wanted them to come into his close-knit group of disciples. Socrates did that 500 years ago with Theetetus because he saw the mathematician standing at the wall, over by the wall, merely a follower, observing, and he said, come and sit with us, Theetetus. Come and sit with us. Jesus chose his disciples. He called them to himself. He said, come to me. And in verse 14 of Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, then Jesus appointed 12. Out of all those that came, it wasn't just 12 that came to him, many came in response to come to me. But he, out of those, he chose 12 for a specific purpose. All were chosen, but 12 for a specific purpose. He chose 12 that they might be with him. Jesus doesn't want us just to follow as observers. Jesus wants us to come to him, to be with him, that we might learn from him. So to follow the first step morphs evolves, develops into this next step, come to me.
come to me indicates the importance that Jesus places on intimacy. This is how disciples are made. You can't make disciples from afar. I know that you can get books and training materials sent to you. But I have to tell you one thing about the Lord Jesus that I personally know, and I'm sure that perhaps you all know already. So if I'm preaching to the converted, forgive me, that's my third apology and my last apology. I will apologize no more today. I refuse to. But you know what I mean. You probably already know this. Jesus is not interested in distant, distance learning. Now Jesus has blessed the church by giving us apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers. But never for one moment think that Jesus is afar off. Never for one moment think that Jesus is not interested in you learning from him. He will take what you're hearing. By his Holy Spirit, he'll enlighten you. He will minister it to you. We're blessed to have wonderful teachers in the church, leaders in the church. But Jesus is very jealous. He wants to remain central to our lives, always central. It's all for Jesus, all for Jesus, all for Jesus. While we are so terribly thankful for every teacher that God has brought into our lives. For that is how God makes us into disciples. Follow me. Observe. Get the picture. I heal the sick. I raise the dead. I preach the gospel. I preach the word of God. I'm talking about Jesus. He does that. Now come to me. Do you remember Peter? After Jesus had risen, he was in a fishing boat, and Jesus was on the shore cooking breakfast. Peter sees Jesus, jumps out of the boat, first one out there, so tenacious, so desperate for, to be close to him. Peter came to him on the beach, and Jesus said to him, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know I love you. I've been with you three years. So Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Then Jesus straight away said again, Peter, do you love me? So Peter thinks, didn't he hear me the first time? Lord, you know that I love you. I've just told you, didn't I? Think I did? I did. Tend my lambs. A third time Jesus says it. Peter, do you really love me? Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. Of course I love you. You know it. Feed my sheep. What does that tell us? It tells us this. Jesus is more interested in us, our fellowship with him, coming to him, Second step, coming to him, learning from him, intimacy. God is more interested in us than what we can do for him. But what we can do for him, we will do for him and he wants us to do it. But what comes before a program and ministry is us knowing Jesus. He matters. And it's not just a step that you fulfill and then leave behind. It's a perpetual motion thing. We come and we keep coming. We come and we keep coming. We come. And that is what prepares us for ministry. How can you teach about somebody you don't know? It's through this sort of intimacy that we get to know the great master. The greatest master. But you know what? Even that is not enough. 
for us to be disciples and to make disciples. You'd think it would be, wouldn't you? You would say today, boy, oh boy, I know the definition of discipleship. It's to follow and to come. Look at that. How wonderful. But there's more to come. Step three. To learn. We follow. We come. We learn. That invitation to come leads seamlessly into the emphasis of to learn. Socrates is sitting opposite Theaetetus, the young disciple, who, the young mathematician, who at first just simply was an observer, is invited by Socrates to come and sit with him and his other disciples at the, around the common table. Socrates looks at Theaetetus and discerns that within Theaetetus, this young math- mathematician, there is something something there. He's pregnant with ideas and thoughts. And Socrates wants to draw that out of him. So he said to Theaetetus, I cut Theaetetus, I come across people who do not seem to me somehow to be pregnant. Remember, Socrates was called the intellectual midwife. Not caring for men's bodies, but caring for men's souls. And, and Socrates was a, a, a nice man, actually. He saw within Theaetetus something that he could see that this man was pregnant with life and ideas. But Socrates said, Theaetetus, I come across people who do not seem to me somehow to be pregnant. Then I realize they have no need of me. I think of the Lord, you know, how he knows our hearts. He he sees within us a desire to learn, a desire to go on and to know him. When you think how small we are, how tiny our brain is, how tiny it is, and we're living in this incredible universe. So much to learn about the Lord, his ways, his greatness is unfathomable. We should be hungry, pregnant with desire to learn from him. That's what Socrates' disciples wrote about Socrates and Theaetetus. Using the term Mathetes, disciple. Where is the New Testament parallel here? Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. Spoken plainly, Jesus said two things. Two things. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Very, very quickly, Christianity does begin with rest. We're entering in, when we enter into his rest, we are entering into a finished work. We are already set apart in God. We don't become disciples to earn our salvation. We are disciples because we are saved. We are disciples and it begins with rest. Come to me. Jesus didn't say, come to me and then get out. Reach the world. He said, come to me and I will give you rest. 
So we enter into this amazing finished work, the power of his blood, which has efficacy and is efficient for us, for all of our lives and beyond. We rest in his, the fact that we are seated together with Christ in heavenly places. He is, what he's done for us is amazing. We were in the kingdom of God, of darkness. He snatched us out and has put us in the kingdom of his dear son. It's been done. We don't fight for victory in that sense. We work from victory. Fight from victory. The victory has already been won for us. Being a disciple is not to gain salvation. To be a disciple is to become like Jesus, which as we said in that little intro at the beginning, the purpose of discipleship is to become like our great master, step by step, to make visible the invisible, making him visible for our world. So that all he's done for us can be worked out in us and through us. And the world around us says, wow, my, haven't you changed? Especially those who knew us in the first place. Undoubtedly, discipleship is about working out what's already been worked in. To learn. Jesus said, come to me. But he didn't just say, come to me. In the very next verse, in Matthew's Gospel 11:29. Jesus, having said, come to me, said, learn from me. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me, learn from me. Hand in glove. That's the hand in the glove. We First of all, we follow, and we obey the command, follow me, and I will make you. Having followed... There is another step that Jesus leads us to, where he says, come to me. And I believe that goes beyond mediocre Christianity already. It goes beyond the elementary step. It's the almighty God that calls us to come to him. Preparing us for ministry. Preparing us so that we will be like him on earth. And so that we can see homes, families, towns perhaps. Maybe some countries, maybe an empire. Who knows? Fall to its knees by the power of God's word as we are his disciples. So Jesus said, come to me, learn from me. Notice, not learn about me. Doesn't say that, does it? Jesus, as we said, is not interested in distance learning. Come to me, learn from me. What an amazing teacher we have in our lives. What a privilege to walk before God. In fact, to walk with God. In fact, not just to walk with him, but to sit with him at his common table where he teaches us and we learn from him, not just about him. A wonderful parallel. And so 21st century application. This is what the master insists on that his disciples will do in this, our generation. That we will teach about a God who can be known. A God who wants us, wants us to come, wants us to learn from him. But you know that learning is not good enough, folks. That was stage three, and we mentioned that there are at least seven stages. What could stage four possibly be? Isn't it enough to follow God and to 
come to him and then to learn from him isn't surely that will make me a disciple <laughs> nope yes no you're not we're not all the way yet Jesus said this and the step four is to adhere to adhere to what we've learned historically there was a great demand amongst the early disciple makers Socrates certainly being perhaps the most renowned although Aristotle no doubt catches up somewhere along the way but he was a disciple of Socrates and Plato you hear a lot about well Plato was a disciple of Socrates how did they become like Socrates well they adhered to what they heard there was a demand for diligent single-minded continuance that's what adherence is about adherence really is continuance placed upon that early disciple in Plato's Mino or Meno Plato wrote if a young musician whom Plato calls a Mathetes, a disciple, if a young musician wished to become a good flautist, he had first to come to a master who himself was a flautist, learn from him, and continue in his teaching. This is how that word was being used, disciple, in this, in this fourth step. If you want to become a flautist and a professional flautist, you come to a, a, a specialist flautist. He teaches you, but it's pointless in teaching you if you don't go away and practice and continue in his teaching. You forget. The quickest way to forget what you've been taught is don't adhere to it. Don't continue in it. Forget it. Being a disciple is one who, who follows, comes, learns, and continues at all costs. We adhere. We adhere. The teaching, Plato said, was efficacious in getting the novice through to a specialist or a specialist level on this condition. The novice must adhere, which means to stick fast to what you've heard, like glue, with singleness of purpose to the master's teaching. This is how churches grow. This is how young Christians become mature Christians. This is how young disciples become mature disciples. How can we make disciples if we ourselves are not walking in the steps of discipleship? And of course, learning isn't just you come and you think, uh, some young people, it amazes me. I have met young disciples who think they know everything about everything. My daughter was one of them, and she was only nine at the time. I know everything about everything. She didn't say it, but she acted as if she did. She's now 30, and I think she's now learning. Daddy was right all the time. Honey, there's so much more to learn. And please don't forget what you learned. Oh, and Daddy, how do I not forget practice? Stick to it like glue. Don't forget your mother's teaching, the great Solomon, the wisest man when all the world was told. It would be like a garland around your head. Wisdom. How many people go wrong in life because they do not continue in what they learned? The New Testament parallel. Well, the great master himself expressed the condition. And it's a condition. You're not saved by works. Well, you are saved by his works. 
but you're not saved by works but boy oh boy if you're going to be a real mature disciple and you're going to make mature disciples because you can only make mature disciples if you are yourself a mature disciple well Jesus expressed the condition upon which true discipleship was dependent he said this in John's gospel chapter 8 and verse 31 if there's the condition if what a big word if is huh? two letters big word if you continue abide to continue means to abide it's the word adhere if you continue or abide or adhere to my word you are my disciples indeed so what is Jesus saying is he actually saying if you don't continue in my word well I'm not going to answer that here we have it this is the condition that Jesus said now the wonderful thing about the Greek words which is in our Bibles our, you know the Bibles our New Testament was originally re- written in the what was called the common market not, it's not the classical Greek but it was in the common market Greek and uh, the word used in, the, in our New Testament is the Greek word meno which means to dwell to endure to remain in a place live there in other words to stand and to continue 21st century application what does it mean for us today well having first followed as an observer which is stage one and having come to the master and keep coming step two started ongoing process we started the ongoing process of learning from him step three the 21st century must diligently continue adhered to the master's teaching step four the words power Jesus said if you continue in my word there is power in the word of Jesus Christ power power to aid our reconstruction which is what the process that we're going through you do realize of course that some buildings we come to Jesus as we are we come as we are we think we're pretty good or maybe we think we're terrible maybe we think we don't deserve it maybe we think we do deserve it both are right I suppose to a small degree no one is right we come to Jesus and we bring so much baggage from our past with us so many things our ideas which are not quite there not right we come as we are and Jesus begins his work which actually oftentimes is deconstruction he deconstructs us the building that we have built he begins to knock it down things that are harmful to us he begins to remove so what began as a like a honeymoon soon turns into sometimes a bit of a nightmare and we said I thought this Christianity was a happy occasion I feel terrible what's going on I thought Jesus loved me what's he doing to me I mean I, I felt his presence the first week I came through to him and now where's he gone I'm all on my own and I don't like it Jesus is knocking down what he wants to knock down in order that he may reconstruct our lives. There's a process of deconstruction in order that a process of reconstruction in his image. 
that we'll become like him. That's what's going on. So we don't worry, but the word of God is vital in that process. The word you hear on a Sunday, believe me, if you've heard the word, it will be tested during the week. And the Holy Spirit will take that word and he will bring it to your remembrance, which Jesus promised he would do. And we are, have a choice. We either stick to the word, hold fast to it, no matter what because the enemy would like to come and rob us of it like the birds coming and taking the seed. A good heart receives it, hides it, and the Holy Spirit tests it. He wants to work it into us. So it's not, we don't become intellectually blown out of proportion. We become humbled by the word because in the light of the word we realize we fall short. We'll always be falling short. We're never going to be perfect in this lifetime, but we'll be perfected in the next by his grace, where we'll be fully like him. By the way, never exactly like him. The original is always better than the copy. Don't know about you, I want to be a good copy. Because, you know, some paintings you see, they've been copied. And you think, oh, that's nothing like the original. Then you get those paintings, and they've been copied so well, it's really hard at first. Wouldn't it be lovely by the end of our life to be like him? Humble, gracious, kind, forgiving. Even our enemies, boy oh boy, it's tough to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because his sayings are so hard that many of those who first followed him, observing him, in the end left him because his sayings were too hard. Like, forgive your enemies, love your wife. Why did you laugh at that? (laughs) His sayings are hard. But boy, it's like the cross, you know, the cross. We we say, Jesus did it all, and he did. It's through his cross that I live. Yes, it is. But we also have our personal cross to lift up as well and to take with us. And it's our personal cross that denies us. We deny our flesh. We choose to deny ourselves. We say, no, Jesus, your ways are righteous, and I want those. So we put ourselves, we, we take up, Paul said, I take up my cross daily. Bit of a painful process. But the thing is, it's the most liberating affair. Because it is the cross that liberates us and brings us to where we want to go anyway. We should love the cross, embrace the cross. You cannot be a disciple without a personal cross. We need our personal cross. Thank God for a cross. When you get out of bed, you say, where's my cross? Oh, there it is. You say that before you get into your slippers. Where's my cross? There it is. So all that nastiness that you would love to spout out over breakfast and you're so annoyed about everything, the coffee's cold, the whatever it is, you are nice and loving and kind. You're beginning to practice the presence of God, which, by the way, is our next step. Because we're not just to adhere and stick fast to what we have learned, which was the fourth step. It comes and brings us to the fifth step. Wow. This step is fabulous, I have to tell you. I absolutely love it. Okay. First of all, the historical. Let's get the boring stuff out of the way. Uh, Socrates imitated his own master. It's to imitate The fifth step is to imitate. Socrates, it was said, imitated his own master. His master was Homer. Now, what is interesting about that 
is that Homer lived 400 years before Socrates was born, and yet Socrates said that Homer is my master, whom I will imitate. How could he do that if his master was born 400 years and had since passed on many, many, many years? There is a sort of a a similarity here between our lives in the sense that our master, the Lord Jesus, he himself went home to be with his father 2,000 years ago. And yet, look at how we follow him. Look at how we want to be like him. He's our master and we want to imitate him. And yet, he's been gone from this earth, although he's always been present through his Holy Spirit, of course. Socrates used the word methetes, disciple, in this context of imitating, imitating. It was part of the process of disciple making. What's the New Testament parallel? They abound. The term methetes is used in these different contexts. To be an imitator of the master's beliefs and practices, the New Testament exhorts us to mimic. Mimic? Yes. To mimic in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 9, the apostles' conduct, they mimicked in a sense the missionaries. No, sorry, the disciples are to mimic the apostles' conduct as missionaries. They are to imitate the lifestyle of those that are before them. The, the, the word mimic is used when we are told that we are to copy the faith of those who rule and who have taught us the word of God in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. So those who taught us, who rule over us and teach us, we are to mimic their practice, their belief. We are to mimic them. This is how we grow as disciples. In the third book of John, chapter 11, we are to mimic, and the word mimic again, to imitate, is used. We are to mimic, imitate what is good. And Ephesians 5, verse 1, we have the jewel in the crown. Because in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, we are ultimately to be imitators of God. Blasphemy, some may say. How dare you even suggest that you would ever dare to think that you could imitate God. Who do you think you are? I am a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am nothing but in him. He's making me to be something. And I am told to follow him, to come to him, to learn from him, to adhere. And I'm also instructed by the same master through his apostle Paul to imitate God. Imitate. Practice being like God. Wow. This is fantastic. Fantastic. Imitators of God as dear children. As disciples, but as disciples, we are always going to be like little children in the face of God before the Lord. And as little children, we are to imitate being like God. 
Now, in, for the 21st century application, the Greek verb for mimic is in the continuous tense, which means speaks of perpetual motion. It's constant habit and practice. Constant, continual, continuous tense. We begin to practice being like him, and of course we fail miserably often, but we are not to give up and quit. We are to get up again and carry on practicing being like him. Can you imagine the Lord looking down and looking at his church and seeing all of us as disciples trying to be like him? Mimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimimim
historically, Socrates spoke of his disciples as enthusiasts, lovers, and disciples, mathetei, of Spartan culture. His disciples were expected to become representatives of a certain milieu, a culture, a It's much bigger than just that. It's of a belief system. It's of a it's it's just everything that made up that time that was thought to be good and honourable at the time. His disciples, Socrates, were to represent those things. The New Testament parallel is undoubtedly Acts chapter one verse eight, where Jesus said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. How do we witness to Jesus? It's not just to speak about him. It's through practice. It's to demonstrate him. It's about the kingdom of God. We don't just speak of the kingdom. We demonstrate the kingdom and the principles of the kingdom. They matter. And they matter increasingly in our poor, sad world. We are to represent the kingdom of our Father, the kingdom of our God, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to become representatives. You do not send your worst politicians across to Europe to represent Great Britain. Although I do wonder sometimes if that mistake has perhaps been made. We represent the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We represent a disciple is becoming mature now because he realizes and she, or she realizes that it, what she's been practicing, he's been practicing, becoming a little more like God, not pretending to be as perfect, not pretending to have arrived. Paul said, I have not yet arrived. If Paul would say that, what about us? He had not yet come to that place, but he was getting there. Boy, oh boy, what a journey we are on. We are on a terrific journey. Why wait until you get to heaven to be like God? What about becoming like him now? No one's too young. No one's too old. Whether we're young or old, the Bible says that in your old age you will be productive. In our old age we should begin to honor the elderly again because they ought, if they have been Christians for many years, to be so mature now. And many of them are. Some perhaps have not, simply because they didn't have the full model for discipleship and think, thought it's okay for me to be a pew filler, a, a hymn singer, a Bible reader, and hadn't really realized that discipleship is much more than that. It's where we are turned into something wonderful and dynamic, where we represent the King. We represent Him. That's why I believe we represent Him in every aspect, the way we live, the way we talk, the way we work. My God, what a wonderful way to make God so proud of his children when he looks down and says, Do you see Mary? Do you see John? Do you remember the mess they were in? I deconstructed them, much to their fright. I've reconstructed them, much to their pleasure. And now look at them. I can trust them. What, isn't that wonderful when your own children grow up and you can say, I can trust them. They're beginning to make good judgments. 
We can only make really good judgments when our minds are renewed by the Word of God. When we are becoming transformed, that image which is within us by the resident Christ, by His Spirit, begins to be, become manifest outside. What is being revealed is who we really are. And it, believe me, life gives you so many. Life is like a gymnasium. Good grief, my favorite oxymoron. Good grief, it is. It's full of joy, full of grief, it's full of goodness, full of grief at times, it seems. Life presents us with so many difficulties, it's like a gymnasium. How do you get strong? Instead of seeing all the problems, and we say, thank you, Lord, for today. We are told to rejoice in the Lord always. It doesn't mean that we rejoice in in pain. Uh, We don't rejoice at the pain. Who's going to do that? Oh, my foot's hurting me again. No, you don't rejoice about the bad stuff that happens. But we rejoice in the Lord always, which means that we don't look down, because if you look down, what do you see? You see defeat. You look up, and you see the victor. And so we can rejoice in him no matter what happens in our lives. And I have to say, the world looks on and says, why, how can you be so at peace when so much bad is happening? Look at your kid. Oh, this or that or the other. You see, what is a witness to the world is not out the absence of trouble in our lives. What is a witness to our world is the absence of hopelessness. We have no hopelessness in the sense that Jesus has promised he'll never, ever, ever, no, never, ever, ever leave us or forsake us. We begin to represent this God and through representation, the world begins to say, help me. Teach me. Lead me. Help me to know this one you're following. We become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And really that leads us seamlessly. You can't really separate them because it leads us into stage seven. Reproduce. This is what Jesus said. Go into all the world. Make disciples of all all kinds of people, all nations. How can you make a disciple if you don't know what a disciple really is? How can you reproduce? You know that the reproductive organs, organs, biologically speaking, speaking, you have to come to a place of maturity in order to reproduce. To reproduce true disciples, disciples that will go on to be like us. Because Paul did say, Be you followers of me, as I am of Christ. What a cheek. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus saying, Paul, you've gone beyond yourself. What do you mean, be followers of me? You're meant to be saying to people, be followers of Christ. Well, Paul said, be followers of me. How could he say that? Because Paul had been on the road a long time, and he had gone through this full process. He was imitating God, becoming like God. He was ahead, and as long as we are ahead, we, we should be displaying and demonstrating something that someone else can copy. God is very practical. Very, very practical. He wants it to be visible. So he gives us those that we can follow visibly, who are mature, who are taking up their personal cross, who are coming, following, coming, learning, adhering, imitating, representing. Reproduction. The reproduction. Okay. 
Now, I'll just repeat David Watson's, Reverend David Watson's comment. The vast majority of Western Christians are church members, pew fillers, hymn singers, sermon tasters, Bible readers, and you can be all of that without actually coming into intimacy with God and into adhering and imitating and teaching and so on. Bible readers, even born-again believers or spirit-filled charismatics, but not true disciples of Jesus. Well, we don't want to be that. We reject that. We say, no, I'm going to embrace all stages of this wonderful process of discipleship. I want to go that way. Okay. I want to finish with a question and a very brief illustration. I live outside of my town. If I were to take a bus, there's probably about seven steps, that, about seven stops that lead. I get on the bus, my intention is to go into Colchester to shop or to have a meeting or something. There are seven bus stops on the way. I can stop at Stratford St. Mary. I can stop at Capel St. Mary. I can stop at New Cross. I can, no, I can't. New Cross is in London. I can stop at um, St. John's, I meant to say, and so on. Seven stops. My purpose is to go into town. If I get off at Stratford St. Mary, stop number one, I haven't arrived. I haven't arrived. If I got off at Capel St. Mary, step two, stop two, I have not arrived. My purpose was to get on the bus, to trust the bus driver to get me there. I have a meeting there and I've got to be there and on time. But if I get off at any one of those stops before the town centre, I have got off too early. How many Christians today are satisfied with stop one? I'm following. I'm a follower. How many people do you hear say, I'm a Christian. I follow. I believe. I follow. Really? How many Christians are happy with to simply come and to believe in the Master? How many are happy to come and learn? Just learn. I know it all. I know the Bible back to front. How many are happy to adhere? so that their knowledge is growing and they're holding it but yet do not imitate God in practice this is such a practical practical seven stage process which is repeated again we keep following, we keep coming we keep learning, we keep adhering we keep imitating, we keep representing and we keep on reproducing disciples Look at Genesis 1, and each seed reproduces according to its kind. If you are a mature disciple, you will become a mature, a mature disciple maker and will be beginning to make people into our image. Hmm, sound doesn't sound right. Maybe that is going too far. We'll begin to see our disciples being formed into the image of our master, our great master the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our purpose on earth. The purpose of discipleship, we said at the beginning of the second lesson, is that we will become like the Master and make the invisible visible. That is the ultimate goal. Well, thank you so much. You've been great.
a wonderful, I, w I was going to say audience, don't like the term audience, you're not an audience, this is not entertainment, you're great friends, great brothers and sisters in Christ, it's been a delight to be with you, and I hope that my waffling for one and a half hours has communicated something that you will see is worth holding on to, so the Lord bless you indeed, thank you. What a great way to finish this convention. I'm going to set examination for all departmental heads and everyone that played a front role in every department, choir, ushers, and the rest of them. And my examination is very simple. You will tell me off your mind the seven steps to discipleship. You get it, you maintain that office. If you don't get it, I will step you down and I will appoint somebody who got it to take over the leadership. Because, you know, Jesus says something that from the time of John the Baptist, the kingdom of God suffers what? Violence and violence take it by. You remember the seven things I taught you about, you know, uh, sustainable leadership. And as you are listening, you will remember each area that is applicable along the seven steps that he's telling you. The reason why the body of Christ have been ineffective as they should, one of it is that people have been appointed into leadership position that have not themselves been made leaders. And you have issues also that there are members under some leaders who are more leaders than the leaders. And so when those members are trying to come up with information and with system and styles to help enhance, you know, effectiveness, there will be conflict. So one of the things that we all decided and agreed after this convention is that we are going home to apply the principle of impact leadership so that we can rejuggle, restructure, destroy the whole structure, reappoint, and test people and all stuff like that so that we want to move now fast I want to be impactful the life of Jesus Christ fulfills all the examples and I'm very 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 happy as um, evangelist was talking about Socrates Socrates is one of the people I love so much himself and Galileo when I was a science student I love Socrates so much because of philosophical reasoning, and I love Galileo so much because of his inventory intuition. And these are one of the things that drive me when I look at Jesus Christ. You will find every trait in Christ that you find in those people and traits that you do not find in them. In Christ is the completeness of what a true leader should be. And I believe very much that we have been mightily blessed. I would like to dismiss you 